Wenzel Show. Please stand by for Robert Wenzel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Robert Wenzel Show. I'm Robert Wenzel. Today, my guest is Trace Mayer. He is an investor, journalist, and he states he's a monetary scientist. He holds a degree in accounting and a law degree from California Western School of Law. He's a student of Austrian economics and he's studying the works of Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises. He runs a couple of websites, including runtogold.com and howtovanish.com. With the first name Trace, I guess How to Vanish is not a bad name for a website. It's sort of like a leaving without a trace or something like that. Trace, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Robert. Glad to be here. I should state what we're talking about today is Bitcoins. In our email discussion when we were setting up this interview, I warned you there's, there's some things that I'm not completely comfortable with with regard to Bitcoins. So I'm going to bring those up during this interview and, and see if we can get a, a better sense of how far Bitcoins are along to becoming money and whether they ever could be money. So let me start off, Trace, by asking you, what are Bitcoins? That's actually a pretty complicated question. And one of the reasons I can understand why a lot of people have a little bit of trouble with it. Bitcoin, uh, and we should be a little bit more specific in our words here, Bitcoin with a capital B, that would be the open source software that runs this new digital cryptocurrency. And then Bitcoins, those would be the unit account that's used within uh, this open source software. And so Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer encrypted currency, it allows for a form of triple-entry bookkeeping. So you have particular addresses, and these bitcoins, the unit of account, they're transferred between these different addresses. And when I say an address, an address, uh, and this gets kind of into the cryptography, you've got what's considered a public key and a private key. So everybody, they can see the public key. And that's where you would send bitcoins to. But in order to actually send the bitcoins, you have to have the private key. And so that's where the scarcity comes into play because there's only a limited amount of bitcoins. And in order to actually control them, uh, you have to have that private key. And since it's governed by the laws of mathematics and the laws of cryptography, uh, it becomes very practical in the sense of being able to secure the bitcoins just like uh, gold is uh, limited in amount and can be secured physically. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the problem really comes in, you know, the, the first problem is people, like you said, it's complex. And whenever I'm looking at an investment, I think this might be a bit different, but not completely. When somebody tells me an investment is complex, my alarm and radar goes off right away because what they're telling me is you're not going to be able to understand it all. And when I'm looking at specific investments, whether they're gold mines or some other investment, and somebody tells me it's very, very complex, and I slow them down and attempt to try and find out what the investment really is about, generally I can't get there. And now you're going with something that is way beyond my knowledge and a lot of other people, so you have to understand there's a real barrier of skepticism there 
that you don't really get with gold coins and silver coins and things along those lines. I mean, I, I know what they are. I've seen them. Uh, I guess there's been some fraudulent gold bars with tungsten, but for the most part, you weigh this stuff, you test it, and, and you know what you've got. You're talking about stuff that maybe a few mathematicians or maybe there's 10,000 mathematicians out there that understand what a Bitcoin is. But beyond that, it's really a leap of faith at this point, unless you can get that explanation down where everybody can really understand it. Uh, would you agree with me there? Yeah, I would agree with you to a point. Uh, for example, to understand gold and gold coins, we don't necessarily need to have a PhD in chemistry. So likewise, uh, Bitcoin is to gold what math is to chemistry or to physics. And so we don't actually have to have a deep, intimate understanding of the encryption or even the mathematics that goes into Bitcoin in order to be able to safely use it. Uh, just like we don't have to have a deep understanding of how the routing of SMTP, that's the, the protocol that routes email. We don't need to have a deep understanding of how that protocol works in order to use email or even a hypertext transfer protocol, HTTP, we don't need to have a deep understanding of that in order to understand how to use the internet to get to a website because we're able to build pools around these protocols that allow for greater usability. And so that's definitely where Bitcoin's at right now. These tools are getting built up around this open source code, this new form of protocol that makes it easier and easier for people to be comfortable using Bitcoins and, and understand how to use them, you know, just like there was a recent report coming out of Manhattan where you had these 10-ounce gold bars with tungsten inside of them. Now we've got tools where it's very easy to verify exactly how many Bitcoins are in a particular address. You know, it takes two seconds and just about anybody who can read a web page can uh, verify the authenticity and the, the amount of Bitcoins that are somewhere. And so these tools, they're developing and they're getting easier and easier to use. And I think as that happens, more people will be able to comfortably and safely use Bitcoin as a currency. But yeah, I, I do agree that it is definitely complex. And as a form of currency, I would even assert that it's probably the most complex currency that's ever existed in the history of the world because we've got the entire internet that goes into this. We've got computers and everything with computer science and the physics behind that and and all of these things and the apex of all of these advances and all these different branches of knowledge have kind of culminated with Bitcoin. And so it's very interesting to see this new evolution in money and currency. Right. Okay. So that brings us to the point that I raised early on about Bitcoins, and that's the regression theorem, which discusses how money generally evolves. And it looks like you've done some studying up on that because I've seen where in some of your interviews, you actually discuss the regression theorem. So why don't you give us your understanding of what the regression theorem is? Well, what I understand the regression theorem to be is that uh, whatever we're using as a medium of exchange, it, it had value or it had a price uh, yesterday, for example. That price arose because of the trading that took place in the market. And if we trace that back far enough, we, we find that, oh, well, gold had a value in the market for some other use besides money or currency. Perhaps it was shiny or nice to wear or something like that. And so that's mainly the reason why uh, the U.S. dollar currently has exchange value because the U.S. dollar isn't anything. I mean, it's a, nobody owes you a certain amount of gold or anything for it, so it's just a complete illusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
What it really comes down to is a dollar, although it has no backing of any sort, like you said, is the medium of exchange. People take that as the medium of exchange, and they do that because they know yesterday people took dollars, and the day before that people took dollars. And at one time it was linked to gold, and FDR helped cut that link, and then Nixon cut it completely. But basically, way back when, you have to trace it back to when gold was... Uh, Traded almost like barter. The first people that used it as money would go up to somebody and say, you know, hey, here, I know you don't want this gold necessarily yourself, but it'll be easy for you to trade somewhere because somebody else may want it for jewelry. And, and that's how it evolved from there. Now, I also heard you give an explanation after your explanation of the regression theorem of how the Bitcoin fits the regression theorem rules or laws. Can you discuss that? I remember one of the one of the articles that you wrote about Bitcoin and the regression theorem. It's not necessarily that the regression theorem is a prerequisite for something to become currency, at least as I understand it. It's just one possible explanation of what would give rise to a currency, but it isn't necessarily an element uh, for something in order for it to be a currency. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, yeah, matter of fact, I do. But see, in your last interview, which I read, it's, it's good to see you're reading my stuff because I, I did look at your stuff. You did reference Bitcoin as meeting the pattern of the regression theorem. Do you still hold to that? Uh, I would, in general, agree with that because in order to create a Bitcoin, and really all a Bitcoin is is organized information. So just like a PDF file or one of the blogs on your website, for example, is organized information. So likewise, a Bitcoin is, is a form of organized information. It's just organized based on these cryptographic keys, both public and private. And this is another point is the Bitcoin protocol has solved the double spend issue. So unlike a PDF, which can just be copied and pasted infinitely, a Bitcoin is scarce in amount. And this is the real innovation of the Bitcoin protocol is the solving of the double spend issue. And so in order to organize this information, it takes resources. For example, a computer, it takes, well, it doesn't necessarily have to take a computer, but at least in the information age, in order to do any, you're going to have to have a computer. Technically, you could solve these cryptographic problems by hand, but that's just not feasible in today's day and age. But we have the computer, and it takes electricity in order to solve these problems. And so all of those things are resources that are expended in the creation of the Bitcoin, not that the sunk costs necessarily give it any particular value. Uh, but you could say that the electricity and the, the depreciation associated with the computer had value in the market before it was used in the production of a Bitcoin. And in that sense, I suppose we could see the regression theorem at work. And then as that interview that you saw, the first transaction with Bitcoin that took place, you know, back in uh, 2009, and it was 10,000 Bitcoins for one pizza. And so that's where it really kind of crawled out of this primordial ooze and has begun functioning as a currency. And now there's millions of dollars a day that get transferred via Bitcoins. And so, you know, now it's kind of a moot point whether it is a currency or not because it is a currency and and this is how I think the regression theorem would apply to Bitcoin in this particular instance. Yeah, see, I would disagree with you on two points here. First, if, if you understand the regression theorem the way Mises formulated it, what he talked about is going back to a time where the currency was a commodity that had value outside of it being a money. And, and gold arose as 
sort of like the ideal commodity because it was easy to carry. It's easily recognizable. It's very, very difficult to counterfeit. And basically, the way you have to think about the way gold started, it was water. And then some guy goes to somebody else and says, hey, you know, I want what you have. That's really a nice sack you woven. And I'd like to buy it, but I don't have anything you want. But why don't you take gold? Because somebody else will want that gold. And the guy who has the sack recognizes that and agrees to the transaction. And then over time, gold evolved as a money, as a medium of exchange. But it's only because everybody else understood when they first took that gold that it would be easy for them to trade it to somebody else because it already had value. Now, if you come to me with a Bitcoin and say, you know, it was made by electricity and computer depreciation, how would I be able to sell that to somebody else and say, hey, look, here's some electricity and depreciated computer. It's not the same thing. Well, to further clarify my point on that, uh, in the information age, uh, math is money. And these computer cycles that are, in this particular instance, allocated to create Bitcoin are in many ways fungible. And so they could be allocated to solve an astrophysics problem or sequence a human genome or perform bioinformatics or any other number of uses. So perhaps it's the processing power then that might function as the, by analogy, the, the gold that could be used in some other thing. To be honest, I'm not particularly sure exactly how the regression theorem would apply in this instance, or if it's even necessarily that material of an issue when it comes to whether or not to allocate capital into Bitcoins. Are you saying that if I have a Bitcoin, then I can go to somebody that's working on uh, DNA or some other scientist and say, hey, here's this Bitcoin, it, it gives you power to work on your science? Are you saying that? Or are you saying that mathematical power was was created to develop the bitcoin it's two different things yeah so the mathematical power it was it was expended in order to develop or create the bitcoin right and now that the bitcoin is circulating and functioning as currency and has value you could actually spend the bitcoin to buy processing power to then sequence the astrophysics problem or yeah you're jumping around because now you're you're trying to introduce Bitcoin is, is a complete money, and I'm not sure it's there yet or if it will ever get there. But I just want to make the point clear that it doesn't really fall in line with the regression theorem, because the key to the regression theorem is that first step when the guy is willing to take it because he understands he can lay it off right away. That's why almost anybody would take gold coins, because they know they can lay them off to jewelers right away. There's a, there's a ready market for that. Now, for the Bitcoin... There's a little bit of a market, but I don't see it as a huge market. Most people don't even know what a Bitcoin is. I can't go to my grocer and say, hey, take these Bitcoins, you, you can lay them off. I mean, you know, you need someone who's a very, very good skilled salesperson. Trace, maybe you can do it, but most people at this point are not going to accept Bitcoins because they know it's difficult to lay them off in the first place and, and near impossible at, at most, uh, for most transactions. Now, I want to make another point that you raised about Bitcoin's having value because electricity and computer depreciation is used. That's a problem because that's a fallacy of cost creating price. I'm not asserting that the Bitcoins have any value because of the sunk costs that were spent in the creation of them. Okay. All right. So let me ask you this then. How many people are using Bitcoins now? Uh, well, it's pretty difficult to uh, 
get one's arms around the actual economy, but a lot of the best guesses, it's about a million people. One of the larger Bitcoin businesses recently was invited to speak at a payment symposium down in Brazil with two people, two people from the Atlanta Federal Reserve, the Brazil Central Bank, a lot of other people. And the Chilean online payment system is currently doing about five times the amount of volume as this particular Bitcoin company does in terms of remittances. So, you know, within a year or so, I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin uh, is larger than probably all but a hundred of the uh, countries in the world in terms of economic activity that's going on within the economy. Well, let me ask you, let me put it to you that way. What percentage of economic activity do you think is done in Bitcoins now? Uh, that's that's difficult to get a get one's arms around, but I, I mean I wouldn't be surprised if it's over fifty million a month, you know, probably approaching a billion a year. Okay. What okay. we would normally consider GDP. I mean, it's very difficult to see uh, into this world. I mean, you, you got to understand we're dealing with cryptographers here. They're good at keeping secrets. Right. Uh, but my best guess would be that's about where it's at because. A lot of these Bitcoin transactions also take place for cash. So it's a very fluid medium to use. Right. Now, see, do you have any suspicions or, or any knowledge as to what type of transactions are being done with Bitcoins? Uh, there, there's all types of different transactions. I mean, you've got everything from the, uh, of course, there's the illicit like Silk Road. Uh, Senator Schumer talked about it. Silk Road. And from what I understand, they're doing 20 to 30 million a month. But I think that might be overestimated. From what I understand, they, they only comprise supposedly, some people have estimated like 5% of the economy, which I don't know, those numbers don't drive with the ones I gave earlier. But like I said, it's kind of a murky thing. But then there's also BitPay.com, which they help merchants integrate Bitcoin into their businesses. And they have over 1,100 merchants already. And like when you receive your Bitcoins, they'll convert them into dollars, euros, Mexican pesos, British pounds, and direct deposit them to the merchant's bank account on a daily basis. And they've got over a thousand merchants that are doing, well, they haven't disclosed how much they're doing in terms of transaction size. But, you know, those are all legitimate businesses, at least in terms of they're selling socks or selling honey or uh, other things of that nature. The Bitcoin economy itself is rapidly growing because there really are no additional costs to accepting it, and it opens the uh, number of customers that one can receive payment from. Right. Although I would imagine that almost any customer has either a credit card or some kind of a PayPal account or something where, where they can pay. I mean, there, there are not people just living on Bitcoin accounts. I, w I would doubt that. But this actually gets to a very important point here. We saw a lot of people who uh, kind of sell things on the internet. There's this concept called the free line, and everything above the free line is free, and everything below the free line costs money. And whoever controls that free line, they control the market. And so, in terms of the currency market, we have costs both time, money, and privacy. So, like, know your customer and I'm money laundering things of that nature, that raises the cost in terms of privacy and in terms of time. Credit cards and things, they all have fees attached to them. Bitcoin, on the other hand, 
lowers all of these costs tremendously. And so they're really beginning to drive a lot of the innovation in the currency market and the evolution. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the current fiat paper monopolies have got a serious competitor on their hands now that's going to ramp up very quickly. Because you mentioned PayPal or credit card. Well, Whenever you pay with a credit card online, you have to you have to give your name and your address, and that opens you up to the risk of uh, identity theft and could open you up to potential political persecution. For example, you know they could run a, a search on everybody who's on the Economic Policy Journal. And I was just reading about the Night of the Long Knives with Hitler. You know, if they wanted to purge uh, everybody, well, that's how they do it. They'd go find who's donated to the uh, com or Mises.org or the Economic Policy Journal, and that's they'd know exactly who to purge. And Bitcoin removes all of these other costs that are associated with the medium of exchange. It just completely eliminates them because you don't have the identity tied to the wallet like you do with your credit cards or your bank accounts or things like that. And so it really does drive down the cost both in time, money, and privacy. And that's one of the reasons I think it'll be increasingly accepted because, as I said, it doesn't cost merchants anything to accept Bitcoins in addition to everything else that they're already accepting. True. Now, see, I think what, what you're talking about here is where Bitcoins really has potential. I'm not sure how it's going to completely play out, but it does have potential because as the um, government regulations and laws get more onerous, it's going to be more and more difficult to do basic transactions. And if you can do those via Bitcoin, that's going to be an advantage. For example, say someone is, is dying of cancer and has the funds to pay for the drugs and whatever care may be needed, but Obamacare rules that person uh, you know, should not get the care. Bitcoins is a very, very viable way to sort of get around all that and, and make a payment and get the services required. Now, the more and more the government comes in and starts clamping down on things, I think the more and more valuable uh, Bitcoin becomes. So I think that's where the opportunity lies. When, when people start to realize, hey, I'll get paid, but I want to get paid in a way that is completely private, then you're really going to see uh, Bitcoin take off. Now, my question at that point is, how does the government react to that? Will Bitcoin be something that's private on both ends, where not only the payee doesn't raise any flags, but also the merchant on the other end is not one necessarily advertising that they're using Bitcoins because the government could, I mean, talk about putting a, a stamp on a site. If you put up a, a Bitcoin, I accept Bitcoins, I mean, you're really marking yourself with the government at that point because you're basically saying, you know, I, I want to operate in a way that's private from the government and the government certainly doesn't like that. So it's very, very understandable why the payee would, would not want to do it. And in some cases, why the merchant, if it's a product, service, whatever it is, would want to do. And that's why I think your first market is Silk Road, because that makes sense. Neither the, the payee or the supplier of drugs wants to, wants to identify themselves. They just want to get the, get the deal done. So to the degree the government gets more totalitarian, I think the advantages of Bitcoin become stronger and stronger. Right now, for just an average person thinking of myself here, I mean, it's, it's a hassle for me to, you know, do Bitcoins when everybody else is willing to take currencies and credit cards and all that sort of stuff. But if it's some other, some point down the road, it becomes uh, difficult to do transactions, 
then your bitcoins may come in and play a very, very important role. So, And that gets to the censorship-resistant uh, nature of Bitcoin is the strength of the network that's behind it. Because as I mentioned in that interview, there's 275 petaflops in the network now, which makes it perhaps the largest distributed computing project in the world. And the U.S. government, they spent $1.2 billion on a Department of Energy computer that only has 15 petaflops. And even if they were to, to have over 51% of the network, all they could do is stop transactions from confirming, and they'd have to be paying all the electricity costs to do that. And as soon as they stopped paying the electricity costs, then uh, the network would just resume and go back to acting like it would normally. And so really what Bitcoin is doing is it's, it's a great force multiplier in allowing the holders of capital to protect themselves at a low cost and yet tremendously raise the cost uh, on anybody who attempts to extort them in any way. And this is really a Pandora's box because it opens up trade worldwide to anybody who's got access to the Internet. And, you know, I'm starting to pay independent contractors with Bitcoins that are in countries all over the world and all these things. And so, you know, whether, you know, you want to get the drugs for the cancer patient or you perhaps wanted to engage in some other activity that might not normally be accepted, Bitcoin really is this Pandora's box. And it's a whole new species of currency that I think is going to continue to allow humanity to really multiply their talents. Just like in the industrial age, we were able to infinitely multiply the talents of our muscles. Uh, in the information age, we're going to be able to infinitely multiply the talents of our mind. And I think that Bitcoin is going to be critical in doing this because it helps solve that double spend issue and allocate the resources and allow us to continue to price things. Even if we were to have Star Trek replicators, for example, Bitcoins would still be scarce in amounts. We still continue to price. Mm -hmm. So, how many bitcoins are out there? And I understand more being created. Can you talk a little bit about that? In the open source code, there's 21 million bitcoins that'll be created in total, and they're created at a predetermined rate. Uh, currently, it's about 50 bitcoins every six minutes. In about a hundred days or so it's going to decrease to 25, and those numbers were chosen arbitrarily from all I can tell. Uh, you know, this is just some experiment. It's the first of its kind. But really, the price of the Bitcoin has already discounted all of the all of that future inflation rate into the current price, uh, if we're thinking it's a somewhat efficient market. And there currently are about 10 million Bitcoins, and we don't know how many of those Bitcoins have been quote-unquote destroyed or in other words, where people have lost the private key, so they're no longer able to access them. Uh, but they might be recovered if processing power gets to be great enough that that private key could be compromised in the future. So anyways, that's kind of an overview of what the currency supply of Bitcoin is. In the current price, I know there was a crash at one point. Can you explain a little bit what went on there? Yeah, there. so Bitcoins, when I first started writing about them, they were about a nickel apiece. And Senator Schumer talked about Silk Road, and all of a sudden there was a bunch of interest in Bitcoin, and they went up to about $32 a piece. Uh, and then that particular exchange got compromised, and it handled almost all of the dollar to Bitcoin exchanges that were going on. And so the price crashed. Uh, then it went down to about $2 in October. 
Uh, in the meantime, the Bitcoin economy and everything's been getting built out and services and all types of things have been being evolved and, and created since then. And now the price has gone up to about $12.50 currently and appears to be in a fairly strong uptrend. Uh, but, you know, it's still around and it's not worthless. And really the price of the Bitcoin itself is not very relevant to someone who wants to use Bitcoin only for the transactional aspect of it because it performs that value regardless of where the price is at. Right. You would buy the Bitcoin at 10 o'clock and spend it at 11 or whatever. Yeah, and, and it's instantaneously exchanged right. and values transferred across the world and it's not reputable. So, you know. You know, I'm a little bit curious about this this crash that happened. You're saying uh, one of the dealers got compromised. He got compromised and what happened? Why did the Bitcoin price crash like that by 90-something percent? We've got Bitcoin, the, the source code, and that's the underlying currency. Uh you know, it's Bitcoin and Bitcoins, but then you've got these ancillary services that are built up in the Bitcoin economy, whether it's a, a vending machine business or it's uh, an exchange business where you can exchange dollars or euros into Bitcoins. Well, the largest exchange business, it got hacked by somebody and lost a bunch of Bitcoins and then it had to close for like a week and and there have been all types of these just problems with exchanges uh, being hacked and other different services. And those are what gets compromised. And that's where a lot of the bad press comes from. The Bitcoin code has never been compromised, but it's these ancillary services. There was one just a couple weeks ago. It got hacked and $250,000 worth of Bitcoins were stolen, basically. And that was about the same amount of Bitcoins that completely crashed the market last year. This year? barely a blip. Nobody even hardly noticed. And so I think that speaks to the underlying strength of the economy and the depth of the capital pools uh, relative right. to the two points in time. Are those dealers able to recover their Bitcoins or are they lost given the, uh, the way the Bitcoin works? Lost to the dealer? Well, they're not lost. They're just transferred to some other wallet address. In a lot of these cases, you know, those are the, quote, customer segregated accounts. But I actually look at this as, as a good thing because, you know, Bitcoins are very attractive to thieves. And so what it's requiring is it's requiring a higher standard of service when it comes to the computer services and the computer technology and security. And so, you know, our current banking system and credit cards, there's $200 billion of credit fraud that goes on and they just eat it. And then they get a bailout from the Fed, and that helps cover part of those costs. In Bitcoins, you know, in, in the Bitcoin economy, when there's a loss, it falls on, on the person who's most responsible to secure those Bitcoins, and that's the owner of the Bitcoins. Because Bitcoins can be secured extremely easily and securely by oneself. It just takes a little bit of technical know-how, and it'll get easier in the future. You know, there isn't an FDIC to go run to, and there's nobody who's going to bail you out in this economy, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Now, if someone wanted to buy Bitcoins, I mean, given this, there's really a relatively small amount, and if you understand supply and demand, and if Bitcoins do ever become an important part of the, the underground economy, there's going to be great demand for that 21, is it 21 million Bitcoins? Is that what it is? It'll be 21 million in total sometime around the year 2040. 
Bitcoin's a phenomenon. A member with the Finnish Central Bank was on their national TV talking about how Bitcoin was legal to use. Uh, Russia, Ukraine is actually one of the one of the largest adoption rates per capita. The U.S. is actually one of the lower uh, adoption rates per capita of all the countries. You know, there's Brazil and Chile. Uh, so Bitcoin is really growing and developing very quickly in all the countries around the world. And people are creating the services in all these different languages also. If someone wants to buy some Bitcoins, how do they go about doing that? I wrote a free guide about this, a free guide to Bitcoins and Bitcoin services. You can get it at freebitcoinguide.com, and it'll show people how to you know, acquire Bitcoins, safely secure them, where to spend them in some cases. And so I'd really recommend people go to freebitcoinguide.com and, and get a free copy of the guide and you know, kind of go through that and figure how they want to best. Uh, acquire their bitcoins and it's you know it's very easy there's some services out there you can go down to any 7-eleven walmart cvs chase wells fargo hand the cashier cash and 30 minutes later you have bitcoins in your wallet and i show people how to do all that in the free bitcoin guide okay trace that's a great note to end on thank you very much for coming on board and discussing uh, bitcoins with me you know again i think it has some weaknesses as far as regression theorem and the cost of production actually creating value and all that. But on the other hand, a totalitarian government makes all kinds of things interesting that would never otherwise become interesting, and, and Bitcoin may be one of them. So uh, it's something interesting that, that I continue to look at and I think will prove of interest for a while here. So uh, Trace, thanks for spending the time. And I'd like to mention again that you can find Trace at runtogold.com. That's R-U-N-T-O-G-O-L-D.com and HowToVanish.com. Trace, thanks very much. Oh, thank you very much, Robert. Anytime. Thank you for listening to The Robert Wenzel Show. This is Robert Wenzel. Be sure to check out my website, EconomicPolicyJournal.com, where I blog seven days a week about economics, finance, politics, and liberty. Executive producer of The Robert Wenzel Show is Chris Rossini. Head of Editing and Mastering is John Daubert. <laughs>